I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Troy Hunt, a renowned figure in the security industry. Troy is the creator of Have I Been Pwned, the author of the Troy Hunt blog, the host and producer of the Troy Hunt Weekly Update podcast, a plural site course author, and a serial conference speaker. Uh, in this episode, we cover the story behind Have I Been Pwned and the business decisions behind its evolution, including deciding whether or not to sell. We also touch on the origins of these various efforts and how they have each grown over time into valuable components of his personal brand. Enjoy. Troy, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Kyle. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So your introduction to computing was back at Griffith University, or at least as I understand it, and your formal introduction. You ended up actually leaving the university to work full-time since the dot-com era was really exploding at that time. This was back in 1997. What did that decision look like for you to kind of leave university in the rearview mirror and continue with your, your career? Well, I guess university was sort of the point where I was like meant to start taking it seriously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and like to, to some extent I did. And I, and I guess that the thing for university is that it, it is uh, a commitment, right? Now, yep. I did a lot of windsurfing while I was at university. Okay. <laughs> That's what I remember the most. Like I was going to university so I could live on the Gold Coast and go windsurfing. Um, but that, look, the, the decision to leave, I left, I, I think I got about 80% through the degree. So I, I'm trying to remember now because it was like mid-90s. But I did, um, I did about, a, I think, a year and a half full-time. And then I'd, I'd really wanted to do web development. So I first saw the web in 95, which was the year I started uni. And hmm. I saw this and I was like, this is awesome. This thing's so cool. I'm going to do a course at university to learn web development. And there wasn't one. I like I could do cable, <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't do HTML. Uh, and for all the kids listening, this was before CSS <laughs> or any of those <laughs> things. So I couldn't do that. But uh, like I, I just couldn't do anything to learn the thing that I really wanted to learn. And it was such an exciting time. And this was also new. So while I was at university, I was I was literally putting ads in the newspaper to to help people learn about the internet, get connected to the internet, connect to an ISP, oh. you know, how to do email, how to use a web browser. And, and I, I'd love to find one of those ads if ever they exist. But <laughs> I think I was charging like $18 for an hour. Uh, they're Australian dollars too, a lot less than in US dollars. <laughs> and uh, I just sort of started uh, started getting out there and, and helping people get online. And then eventually someone's got a business and they want a website. And it's like, well, I can't learn that at uni. So I went and got HTML for dummies. <laughs> and I literally still have the HTML for dummies book. And uh, and just started, I guess, responding to demand, just creating things that people wanted. And they were like super, super, super basic websites. And then eventually one guy came along and he, he wanted me to, to write some horse racing software. And, and we don't have time to get into everything that went wrong with that. <laughs> but okay. basically... Um, that started being more and more demanding. So I went part-time at university and uh, and then used sort of the other part-time to be writing the software. And then that was going really well. And eventually I just put the degree on hold and I thought I'll come back to it later on uh, and never did. So I, I, I kept doing the horse racing thing. That failed absolutely terribly, which is, a, again, a longer story. And then then went overseas, went went to London in 99 in dot-com time, probably tail end of dot-com time and, and never looked back. 
So we won't go into the full detail of this horse racing story, but it sounds like it had a fairly significant <laughs> impact on you from the way you talk about it. And I've got to imagine the lessons learned applied to, to some of your later endeavors and choices. So what's the kind of quick synopsis on how it all fell apart? Well, um, yes, it did have an impact, probably not in the way you're thinking. It was more of a financial okay. impact because I nearly went bankrupt <laughs> out oh, wow. of it when I was like in my early 20s. Uh, so I'm actually writing a book at the moment. It's getting very, very close to completion, and that has more of the full story. But the, okay. the, the TLDR was that, um, and, and if any Aussies are listening to this and they know what the Gold Coast is like and they know the reputation, um, investment schemes running out of the Gold Coast, not always so legit. So okay. this guy turned out to be a little bit shady and then he had someone else who was doing the marketing of it that was a lot shady. And it turned out to be a bit of a Ponzi scheme, which, mm. which is not something that, that what was I at the time, early 20s Troy uh, or my girlfriend who was, who was doing a lot of the heavy lifting because she was a better programmer than me, <laughs> not something we really understood. So the whole thing ended up failing drastically. The relationship broke down as well. I had creditors chasing me. I was really worried I was going to get bankrupt. And, and the lessons that I learned out of that, to be honest, were much more financial lessons and the, the way business works. And the responsibility of directorships is, is the, the big lesson <laughs> that I learned the really hard way. So after going through that experience, I mean, that sounds like the perfect opportunity to then pivot back to university, right? You almost went bankrupt. Your client betrayed you. That kind of natural reaction that I would see is, okay, let's try this university thing again, get some stability. But you didn't do that. How come? Well, there are multiple factors. So I mean, when I left, there was nothing on the horizon that would teach me what I wanted to learn. Again, I, mm. I really wanted to really wanted to do web dev uh, at a time when there, when there wasn't a lot of it. Um, so that, that was partly it. I also, I don't like authority a lot. <laughs> and I, I, think, I suspect there are a lot of us in this industry that feel the same way. And yeah. I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but I didn't like being told that in order to have this you know, CS degree, you need to go and do uh, chemistry. So one of the subjects, I think like the only subject I think I actually failed was chemistry. Mm. And I'm like, why not? I, like I, I have to go and learn about atoms and molecules and stuff, but I can't learn about markup. You know, like this is just just ridiculous. And that there's a, a big part of me that's anti-establishment in so far as I never really liked going to school, like you know, primary school, high school, this sort of thing. I didn't like other people saying that this is the way to do it, this is the path, this is what you should follow. And because I, I had gone independent, uh, and, and when I went over to London, I was I was independent, and I was suddenly seeing all of this money from the dot-com times as well. So why would I why would I go back to university to do something I don't want to do to then go and get a normal job, which is probably not what I really want? Mm. And eventually I did that anyway and decided it wasn't what I want. And then uh, I, I just remember by the time, so I was in London for about a year and I came back in 2000 uh, and eventually ended up in Pfizer for 14 years. But I just remember not too long after I got back, uh, well, that's not too long, several years, I thought, oh, you know, like I got like 80% of this degree or something. I should just knock the rest off. And I called them up and I was like, hey, you know, what I've got to do to knock the rest of this off? And they're like, no, you got to start again. Everything's expired. Oh, wow. What do you, what do you like, if, if, if I had it finished, would it have expired? No, no, no. Like if you do 100%, <laughs> then you get to keep it. If you do 99%, we chuck it all in the bin and you got to start again. I was like, okay, now I remember why I'm anti-establishment. Right. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, I certainly want to come back to that anti-establishment theme a little bit later on. 
you already started talking about Pfizer there a little bit, so I want to I want to jump forward to that. But we haven't yet touched on superlative enterprises. So you, again, like you mentioned, were pursuing some of that web development knowledge, and university wasn't the place. So you ended up working as a programmer for several different companies. After that decision, you founded Superlative Enterprises in I think it was 1997 as well. And this was kind of the, to my understanding, outlet for some more of that individual consulting and contracting work, but you're actually still running this today. It's kind of your individual holding company. So what was that initial story behind actually putting a name behind the work that you were doing? Well, I think the funny thing about it is that that it's not a name that would be recognizable to anyone other than someone who's maybe looked at my LinkedIn and it literally <laughs> is just, just a holding company. So yeah. that uh, I set that up in 97 when I was starting to do the sort of the, the independent software development stuff and it was literally just a vehicle for me to earn personal services income through. So I, sure. I still run that company. I'm still employed by that company. I'm the only employee of that company. <laughs> it pays me a salary. It gives me some tax-effective vehicles for expenses and business things but um but that's it so i own the domain name <laughs> com.au and that's that's really all it does and I, I think really that the question is probably more around what was i actually doing at the time as opposed to what was like the the legal and financial construct i used right i mean that was actually the the next piece that i had on here and you're completely right. I think it's no stranger to the listeners here that there's a decent amount of LinkedIn stalking that goes into each of these episodes. So that's certainly where it came from. Uh, but well, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, I, I keep getting people popping up and congratulating me on my work anniversary. Oh. I have absolutely <laughs> no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, there's a, like that little LinkedIn button. Hey, it's Troy's work anniversary at like maybe superlative. Uh, would you like to congratulate <laughs> him? And suddenly I start getting all these messages. I'm like, who are you people? <laughs> What's this about? I don't know. They're they're trying to be positive at least though, so you can't fault them for that. <laughs> nah, I just don't uh, fault them. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, but to your point, right? What did the the actual operations for Superlative look like at the time when you were also taking on these full time software development roles? Well, I mean, back in '97 when I first started doing the, uh, I guess the the general website development and the horse racing stuff as well. Again, it's just like that is the entity that would would do the billing or hold the shares, and and then it did very very little for a very very long time. In fact, really, from I would say from the start of two thousand and one when I started working for Pfizer until probably about twenty twelve, where I started earning money independently from uh, from the likes of Pluralsight. It was probably like single digit thousands of dollars it made from just little bits of ad hoc work here and there. You know, someone wants a website sure. built or something like that. Uh, and then since then, and now it's sort of the entity that that if I have to do anything legal or formal, if I have been pwned, it sort of sits under there. If I have to invoice mm. someone for any, anything related to that, and that sort of you know sits there, and again give, like gives me a salary, but it's probably more the question of um, of what are the the activities. So you know things like Pluralsight, for example, is you know, people know me for that, or know me for have I been pwned? Right. Okay. So. I do want to touch on some of these different side projects, but let's at least cover off on Pfizer a little bit. Uh, you had a, a post several years back. A lot of folks didn't even realize that you were working a, a full-time day job at Pfizer just because you were so active in the security community as a blogger and ultimately leader. But again, you did work at Pfizer for 14 years, not even in a security role to my understanding. Mm. 
So how did that actually set the stage for the rest of your security career? It made me want to stop what I was doing. <laughs> That's Honest. that for an answer. So if, uh, look, for, for background, I, I went to Pfizer as a, um, as a software developer, uh, originally building classic ASP and then doing ASP.NET. Uh, and I went there, so I started in 2001. And then I, I was on contract, and, and I always liked contract because contract, like they pay you an hourly rate. Uh, you wouldn't get holiday pay or sick pay or anything like that. But I didn't really take holidays and I didn't really get sick. So that was okay. <laughs> uh, and it's not like America where you need a job for insurance. We have universal healthcare here. Amazing thing. Uh, so I didn't have to worry about any of that. And and the the hourly rate really meant I got paid pretty much twice what I would get paid otherwise because I, I mm. would usually work, I think it was about 11 hours a day. I could go into the office about 11 hours a day. Wow. Um, because that just, just you know, paid the bills, um, which was great. But over time, they sort of went, you know, organisation's changing, uh, all the rest of it. Uh, we're going to be getting rid of the contracts. We're going to offer you a permanent role and you can be an architect. I was like, well, I like software development. They're like, no, 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 no. If you want your career to progress, you've got to be an architect. Uh, <laughs> all right, whatever. So I took a massive pay cut. I think it was about a third or somewhere. It was tw- somewhere between 25 and 30% um, pay cut. Went permanent with the promises of career growth and opportunity. Um, that uh, I think your laughter is an appropriate reaction. (laughs) So that never really eventuated. But I was sort of starting to get through to, I guess, particularly about early 2010s, you know, 2010, 11, 12. And I just, like I I was doing the architecty thing, which for Pfizer really meant just managing vendors across uh, across Asia Pacific. So that my architecture responsibility covered a, a fairly big chunk of the world and it was a, a part of the world that was emerging very quickly and part of the strategy here was just to say software developers are expensive let's uh i'm going to air quote here let's unburden ourselves by getting rid of the software developers and just outsource everything to like the lowest cheapest markets in usually in china india and the philippines uh, sure. And you wouldn't believe what happens when you go to like the cheapest possible vendors in China. And <laughs> I think I might. <laughs> I think you might. I think you might. So I spent my life just looking at atrociously bad code and I wasn't getting to write code, but I was getting to pull other people's code apart, which I think is sort of speaking to the, to the, I guess, the closet hacker within all of us, particularly mm. in this industry. And uh, and I started blogging about it, uh, and I had to be super super cautious because I, uh, as you just mentioned, like a lot of people didn't know I worked there. I I had to keep my my sort of public life separate, and, and people at Pfizer knew I had a blog. My boss knew I did, but I don't think he really knew what to do about it. Sure. <laughs> so I'd. Um, I'd write blog posts and I'd, I'd abstract it. Like I'd, I'd see something screwy in a piece of software that someone built for us and I'd, I'd sort of put that aside and go, okay, now let's just write something that's very industry generic about this particular pattern. So <laughs> a really good example, I think the thing that really got me my big start was I wanted to write the OWASP top 10 for ASP.net. Like let's just go through, take the top 10 and write multi-thousand word blog posts on every one of them explaining how to tackle this in ASP.net. Huh. Uh, and that was... That was very relevant to the problems we were having at Pfizer, but I could do it in a fairly generic way. Interesting. Okay, so then how did this all actually tie into security itself? I mean, it sounds like you kind of 
again, you started this blog, but where did the idea for security in particular come from? Well, look, again, it was kind of accidental where the, the, the sorts of, of, I mean, look, we, if we think about software and all the things that you can screw up, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, right? It's like yep, yeah, uh, massively suboptimal. Uh, let's pick something really simple. Like why are the thumbnail images on this page two megabytes each? You know, <laughs> why is this necessary? Why is this page making 200 requests to load? Um, you know, why do we have really bad database design or things like this? But, you know, obviously sort of part of that whole spectrum of how badly can we screw up software is the security piece. Yep. And, and keep in mind, like we were doing things like writing software to, to do stuff like manage clinical trials and report adverse events. Mm. Now, probably 18 months ago, not many people knew who Pfizer was. I used to have to say, you know, Viagra? <laughs> you make Viagra. <laughs> and now, of course, everybody knows. But for those of you that have gone out and, and, uh, and had your vaccines, et cetera, whether it's from Pfizer or one of the other big farmers, uh, they've probably had questionnaires afterwards. I certainly did after my shots where it's like, you know, one week later, did you have any AEs? You know, what were they? Could you please report them so that we can not only report to regulatory bodies, but uh, I guess further improve the uh, the, the product. Right. So we'd be writing systems to do stuff like that, which is really important, important information that is highly sensitive. And then to see egregiously bad security flaws. And I'll, yeah. I'll give you an example of what I mean by egregiously bad. So I sure. always tell the story about this one because it's just hilarious. So we had a, a vendor in China building a mobile app. And this mobile app had a, a facility for you to authenticate to it. So you'd create an account. And I can't remember what brand it was we were doing this for. But anyway, you create an account and then you'd get certain access once you logged on. And... I, I proxied the traffic and I, I had a look at the API calls and there was a call to a web service using the, the old classic sort of WSDL discovery language pattern where you could then go to a resource which would show all the different methods that were available on this, this web service. And one of the methods was called get users. And you could literally just go and request get users and you'd get a list of every single user in the system and every username and every password stored in oh, wow. text. Now, that, that's not the best bit, right? So... I, uh, I write an email back, and every time we dealt with people in China, uh, unlike India and the Philippines where there's a really high degree of English literacy, there's no English literacy with the people who had the hands on the keyboard. So everything had to go back through a product manager who'd be the person who would speak English, and then they'd mm -hmm. translate it. So I go back to these guys and I say, look, I, uh, I got, I got the, the beta of, of the app, and I put it on my iPhone, and I proxied it through Fiddler, and I looked at the traffic, and here's what I found. You know, we needed to fix this. And I kid you not, they came back and said, that's okay. Our users don't use Fiddler. I was like, hang on. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't think you have understood the gravity of what I've just told you. But it, it was that kind of base, base, base level of security flaw. So in answer to the question, like, well, how did I start pivoting more towards the security stuff? I think I found it. I found it fascinating to be able to pull things apart in this way. And, and my, my background was just software development. I had no you know, special security training or skills or anything like that. And I, I suspect there's also a little bit in most of us that just like finding problems in other people's code. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I've written code people have found problems with before as well. But I just found that really, really fascinating. And, and then when I started writing, when I wrote that I was top 10 phrasep.net, I just found a, a, a massive vacuum of security information for developers. There's a lot of security information out there from security people, 
And I think it's a lot better now, but a decade ago, there was a real vacuum. Right. And I got a lot of really positive feedback and that that energized me and made me want to write more. And now here we are. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's a bit of a, a combination then of the just interest in finding issues in code. And that's more general, right? But then it sounds like the part that really attracted you to security was maybe the necessity especially a decade ago when we think of where the security industry was and even where it is today, uh, where you said, hey, I can I can make an impact here. And I think that segues nicely into Have I Been Pwned, which for those who don't know, who aren't familiar, I've got to imagine most people listening to this, this episode are, but basically you plug in your email address and find out whether or not it's been breached. Uh, very happy to report. I went ahead and checked today my secure ventures email address is still secured. Um, so happy to see no that, way. but yeah, you're the guy I'd heard there was someone. Wow. Yeah, it's you. exactly. What are the right? chances? <laughs> and you've written a lot about kind of what inspired you to, to start. Have I been pwned? Right. It's kind of what we were just talking about, recognizing that there's really a gap within the industry, but I'm curious what actually triggered the idea. Was it like some project that you were working on for Pfizer where the kind of need came up? Um, what actually caused you to think, oh, maybe this could be something that exists? Well, it's, it, I always sort of say there are two primary factors, and I, I think they're both sort of equal factors. So one of them was sort of the obvious one, which is I thought there was a, a good use case for having a data breach aggregation service uh, right. particularly after the Adobe data breach, which I found myself in twice and wondered Oops. why I was in Adobe when I hadn't given them my data as far as I knew, but mm. because I was a big Macromedia Dreamweaver guy back in the day <laughs> and I'd provided both my work address at one time, my personal address another time, I was in there. But the, the other part of it was that I was really trying to lead Pfizer with my architect he had on down a cloud-first and in particular PaaS path it was a very traditional organisation. I mean, they were, they were like 160 years old at the time. Uh, and most of the computers they had there were 160 years old as well, which is really interesting. <laughs> well, it felt like that, right? But it just it felt very, very old school. You know, right. we will host on-prem and manage our own hardware, et cetera. Uh, and the, the very sort of small cloud footprints we had at the time were very much just just put on-prem in the cloud. So we'd end up with virtual machines and still all the problems with, with effectively having IS environments. So I really want to push for PaaS, but I wanted to have experience myself. I didn't want to just, I always sort of hate this idea of like a PowerPoint architect or, you know, someone draws diagrams hmm. and just goes, you know, go off and do this. It's like, no, I want to do this myself. <laughs> and have I been pwned was sort of the opportunity to scratch both those itches where I could build a data breach aggregation service. And I had a lot of data, but largely just because of the Adobe incident. Um, but also go and actually build some code on the cloud in anger that wasn't just Hello World. So that was sort of the two driving forces. And in fact, when you asked the question like that as well, I, I recall the other thing I was doing at the time is just, just writing a bunch of internal tooling to do things like you know, look for machines with uh, everyone in the admin group of which there were many, you know, mm. things like this. So I'd been writing uh, of my own free volition, just a, a bunch of tooling to, to find stuff that probably shouldn't have been there. <laughs> so I, I think I was still just sort of scratching that itch of I actually like creating things and writing code. And and that's really what started it. And that, that were the, they were the driving objectives. And 
I did not expect it to, to have any popularity at all. I'd, I'd written many failed projects before, <laughs> and I expected that to be another one of them. That's usually how it goes for, for any software developer, I think. I don't, you're not alone in that camp. Uh, so you started this, this project, and again, it sounds like it was just kind of a, a passion project to begin with, but then it really started catching steam. And today, we'll talk about this in a second, it's even used by different governments did you ever have a plan to monetize it or turn it into something more? No, I didn't. And this is this is what's sort of uh, there's a lot of history at the moment. It's going to be great to do these podcasts sometime in the future. There's a bunch of other really interesting stuff that I'd love to be able to talk about. That's not timely <laughs> right now. Sure, <laughs> leave that hanging there. But um, no, so that that's the, the easy answer. So there were. There was no monetization of any kind until probably a couple of years into it, and I wrote about it at the time. I wrote a blog post called, I think it's something like Have I Been Pwned Goes a Little Bit Commercial, <laughs> where uh, an identity theft company uh, wanted to get access to information about their subscribers, uh, and I, I built mm. a bunch of APIs to, to make that available. And since then, there's been a handful of organizations that use it in similar ways. Uh, and there is product placement on the front from one password. So they, they obviously pay to get their brand out there as well. Right. But I, I think what's what's been the success story for Have I Been Pwned is that whilst there has been some monetization that's followed the success, it's it's never been the driver. And because to be honest, it, it, it still isn't, and I really don't care too much about that, <laughs> I can make decisions that I think are, are best for for a combination of the project, for the community, for the way I like to work. I, I'm sure we'll touch on this, but I, I went through a, a merger and acquisition process, which which failed in the best possible way, i.e. it just mm. didn't happen at all. Uh, and honestly, it's the best thing that could have happened to me personally is not to have to deal with that. So I, I love the fact that I can do stuff like give governments free access or do this pwn password service, which is now doing a billion requests a month uh, for free because there, there doesn't need to be a financial driver, but I mean, I guess somewhat ironically, the the only way I'm able to do that is because I do other things commercially, and and they pay well, and they give me the opportunity to work on something that's that's a passion and make that available to everyone without having to try and find a financial upside. Yeah, it is interesting, just in the technology world as a whole, how so much of that exists. I think it's a very kind of positive culture that's been built up over the last couple of decades, just with open source and free tools and this idea of contributing back to a greater community. Uh, but I do want to touch on what you just mentioned there. What was that M&A experience the, that you were talking about that that failed so perfectly? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it, it was a really strange confluence of events that, that all happened at the same time. So uh, early 2019, the, the just the volume of everything from data breaches to traffic to media interviews to speaking events, everything was just just getting very, very loud. Uh, and when I say loud, just a huge amount of emotional drain, a huge amount of demands mm. from people. And, and what I didn't mention at the time is my my marriage was falling apart as well. So I was going through mm. a, you know, what ultimately ended in, in divorce too. Um, don't feel sad for me. I'm engaged to someone else now and I'm much happier. <laughs> there you go. Congratulations. <laughs> I think I've done very well. Uh, but all of that was happening at the same time. And, and, and to be honest, there was a large part of the Have I Been Poem piece, which is like, look, this, this thing needs to, needs to survive me. It needs to be sustainable and not just dependent on me. Uh, so let's, you know, let's go and actually look at, at finding 
a home for it. Let's let's find an organization that can take it on board, yep. invest in it, uh, and grow it into into something more valuable than what it is now, and ensure that. Should I walk out to my backyard and get eaten by a shark? It's possible that the thing actually keeps um, keeps running. And it, it was a really, really fascinating experience. And I, I don't have regrets of having gone down that path because I learned so much. But you know, we 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 being me and KPMG, so I got KPMG to to run the the, the M and A, as they say. Ended up spending just huge amounts of time going through um, uh, putting together things like. Um, uh, ultimately, term sheets for different organisations, but oh, what's the right? I can't remember now. Uh, information memorandum was the thing that had a huge amount of effort going into it. So you know, a document of mm-hmm. here's all the things, and you know, the cyber industry is hot, and you know, all the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. Spent a bunch of time uh, in different parts of the world, especially in, in San Francisco, just going around all these big tech companies, and it was it was fascinating to go into organisations the likes of whom many people are already familiar with. And uh, and sort of sit across from from people who are like, oh yeah, can we get a selfie with you? And then start talking about selling this this service. <laughs> um, and it was a really really sort of super super sort of strange experience. Um, but you know, it uh, it ultimately got to the point where a lot of time went into figuring out what this thing was. What is the legality of it? Is it a transferable asset? And then I think the thing that was the most interesting at the end of it is what is someone actually buying? And I don't just mean like, are you buying data and code and all the rest of it? But what it really boiled down to is that people weren't buying, have I been pwned? They were buying me. And that felt Mm. super, super, uh, like I'd oscillate because on the one hand, it'd be like, oh, well, people think I'm worth the money. Like that's (laughs) that's really nice. (laughs) On the other hand, it, it almost felt like, like prostituting myself, I guess we all sort of do it in a colloquial term as, as a job, right? We have to to sell our time. But every single organisation was like, we we're just not interested at all in have a been pwned. We want to buy you and your exclusivity and your your brand, for want of a better term, and you wearing our huh. t shirt for the next however many years. And of course, it differed, <laughs> but they're all lots of years. And then any payment would be very, very heavily biased towards things like equity, and particularly when they're private companies. Right. If you don't have a liquidity event, the equity could be worth nothing. If it's a big publicly listed company, well, okay, you you might actually be able to figure out what you've got and what it's worth, but you're still locked in for however long. And basically every possible outcome would keep me really seriously tied up for multiple years. And then, of course, many of these organisations were in in the US or Europe. Australia doesn't feature real heavily in the in the global cybersecurity uh, <laughs> scene. So, what would that have meant in terms of expectations of travel? Some companies wanted me to relocate. I was going through this divorce, still not sure how it would work out with all the kids and everything at the same time. So, ultimately, the the thing uh, that there was only one company left at, at the end of the process. We started with I think one hundred and forty four. Uh, that company was was the best fit of all of them. I think it it probably would have been a reasonable fit based on what I knew at the time, but for reasons I can't go into, nothing to do with, with my end, but just a change of business circumstance on their end, the whole thing fell apart uh, yeah. early 2020. And this was just before COVID hit as well. So yeah. to be honest, like by the time it fell apart, I was just like, oh, thank God that's over, you know? <laughs> uh, and I was... Yeah, by then I was sort of through the other relationship and into a new one and everything was settling down a bit and we were getting stability with the kids and all the rest of it. And I just went, oh, 
just can I just go back to running this as a pet project and you know I'll do my best and <laughs> that'll be it so so that that is how it still is to this day okay so it sounds like part of the reason that you were looking to go through this acquisition process is because you felt this kind of increased responsibility there's lots of people using the platform and certainly it's kind of sucking some time out of your schedule amid many competing priorities it didn't work out so you kind of still ended up with ownership of the platform one of the interesting pieces about have i been pwned as i read a bit more about it is that you've basically built these free contracts or ability for governments to actually use the tool completely for free for their own national security how has your kind of perspective changed as you've thought about your impact on just the geopolitical scale from governments relying on your tool to secure their own ecosystem so i feel that in quite often i'm i'm at odds with a lot of people in the security community when it comes to government <laughs> and law enforcement and okay uh, I'm convinced I'm right, but I'll ex- I'll explain why. So, Please. Um, as as time's gone by, largely independently of have I been pwned, but particularly as I got to travel more and more around the world, um, I'd get the likes of government seeing the things that I'm writing and the things I've involved in, and they'd, they'd want to catch up and chat. And uh, and I think what we need to do is probably dis- just disassociate that word governments from the fact that we're talking about people like you and me and people listening to this who work in governments but are our kind of people, you know, they, they're, they're geeks and hackers and all the rest of it and they like playing right. around with code and they're really interested in how things tick and how to break them and all that sort of thing. Uh, and their employer just happens to be someone who's, say, responsible for national security. <laughs> uh, and increasingly I just spend more and more time with these people and it's it, it's been kind of cool, particularly as a, as a speaker who gets around to different parts of the world, where you'd have government people come along to these events and they'd come up afterwards and 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 they'd be the ones who were like, oh, my God, it's Troy Hunt. Like, can we get a selfie or something like this? And be like, oh, sweet, this is really, really cool. Okay, you want to go have a beer? Yeah, sure. And I'd just talk more and more. And it was just really interesting to sort of, I, I think, just put human faces to this amorphous word that we keep referring to as government. It's hmm. like, you know, when you say government, it's, it's just guys and girls and people just doing normal jobs. Like that's that's what it is. And um, as we spoke more and more with people, I often tell the story with the NCSC in the UK. I, I did a I did a talk at uh, I remember what it was actually. It was at Skills Matters. It was a user group talk, probably about four years ago. And there are hundreds of people at this user group talk, and I, I did my normal sort of dog and pony presentation show. And then there's Q and A, and someone in the audience asked this question about. You know, look, what about the government? Aren't they just out to screw us? And I, I think they were just like they'd been reading too much Snowden. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> the impression was always that the government is there to screw us. And I said, look, it's, you know, my experience has been very opposite to that. I think it's it's very, very hard for people in government because, first of all, there's people like you asking questions like that. <laughs> and second of all, second of all, these people are normally working for a fraction of what they'd get in private enterprise, and they're doing it because they want to make a difference in a way that benefits people like you and I, because we don't want to get blown up or for there to be pedophiles and, you know, things like this. And they do play really, really important roles. And and the problem that I have with the perception that so many people have is that when things go wrong, it's always front page news. When things go right, you never hear about it. And I've sort of challenged people sometimes where they'll pop up and they'll, they'll talk about, you know, I remember prism, you know, prism, they're really, really messing with it with prism. So, all right, well, 
which which security initiatives do you think have been the most successful? <laughs> like, well, I don't know any. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the point, right? It's like, and a, a lot of our industry, when we do our job right, nothing happens, and it's it's the same for uh, the same for government. So I, I guess I was I was I, I'd like to think more more balanced and probably perceived as being sympathetic. And after that, someone from the NCSC came over and was like, oh, thanks, man. Like, people don't love us enough. So we had some beers, <laughs> which is where most of my good ideas start. And, um, and yeah, we just, just talked about giving them access to data of their own domains, only the gov domains. And I, I remember this guy saying, look, you know, because it's government, anything to do with money and contracts and everything is just really painful. And I was like, all right, well, let's just not have any. <laughs> so there's, there's definitely no money that changes hands with the 27 governments that are on there at the moment. There's no contracts. There's some emails backwards and forwards where we agree on some things, mostly around the fact that I want to be transparent about their usage. And that's it. And for the most part, most part, <laughs> it's worked out really, really well. <laughs> okay. So then how does that piece translate? Well, first of all, that's not very anti-establishment of you. But second, uh, how does that piece tie back to kind of your responsibility in running the platform? You mentioned 27 different countries that are on the platform now. I mean, I'm sure you feel some sort of personal responsibility to ensure that the platform is still usable for all of them. I would almost argue that the anti-establishment is actually supporting the establishment now because like the social norm within this industry is to be anti-establishment. So I'm anti anyway, I'm going cross-eyed now. Okay. Here, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I, I I think perhaps the way I'd look at it is I I don't I don't feel the need to follow the masses because that's what the masses are doing. But anyway. Right. Uh so look, I, I guess then in, in terms of of the likes of governments having access to the platform, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is that governments are only getting access to things that they can get access to for free on Have I Been Pwned anyway by doing a domain search. Uh, so they can go and verify they can tr- control the domain mm. and then they can run the search. And in fact, particularly in the, in the UK, because they're the first on board, when we started having this discussion, I was like, look, let's just, let's just pull the data and see how many different domains various people across the UK are already monitoring. And it was a triple-digit number. Like, it was a lot that were doing mm-hmm. this already. So we really just sort of said, look, let's let's try and stop reproducing redundant effort uh, and let's let's catch all the domains that are .gov.uk that aren't already being monitored. You know, like, this is, this is good for everyone. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. And what I've found a bit interesting is that there have been certain governments that I've added that some people have said, oh, you shouldn't add them because they're not nice to journalists or there's a disputed territory in this country's uh, borders and mm. I'm not even going to name the countries. People can work it out for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's sort of been some blowback there. And, look, none of them are North Korea or Iran, put it that way. <laughs> you know, I've got to say that there's limits. And in case anyone's wondering, like, what are the limits? Um so, so for, for Australia, like many other countries, we, we have, uh, in our case, it's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. They, they do have restrictions on which countries that we, that we can work with and we can provide mm. certain services to. Uh, and and that's, that's what I defer to, and I leave all the geopolitics to someone else. Um, and again, like people are only getting access to things that they could pull anyway. It's just, just trying to, uh, to, to make this more efficient for organisations or governments in this case. Interesting. Okay, so 
I want to move forward then a little bit and talk a bit more about, well, let's just get started with talking about your Pluralsight experience. Like you mentioned, that's one of the things you're known for today. You have written several, uh, how many courses is it that you've written for them now? Oh, it's over 40. Over 40. Wow. How did that opportunity first arise? So um, back in 2012, uh, I remember I was in Seattle for the Microsoft MVP Summit. And this was when I was just starting to get some traction on the blog and I was creating interesting, useful things. I wasn't making any money out of anything. And uh, I remember sitting with a with a friend of mine who now works for Microsoft and I'd read, uh, he'd written one course for Pluralsight and I'd read this story about a guy, um, a guy called Scott Allen who, um, who, we, who we lost a couple of years ago, unfortunately, but he was a very, uh, he was a, became a good friend later on and someone who was very influential, but also he was the very most noteworthy Pluralsight author very early on. And, and the headline was he was making a million dollars a year writing Pluralsight courses. And I was like, holy shit, like that's, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> like, how do you make a million dollars a year by like sitting at home and recording your voice? So that's, that is insane. I would like to do some of this. <laughs> so I turned to my mate, this is a mate of mine called Aaron Powell, and I said to Aaron, I said, mate, just give me, give me an introduction. Like, let me talk to these guys because I think I've got some stuff that might be useful. Uh, and that's where it started. And I, I did my first course in 2012. And and the, the, the joy of Pluralsight, and look, they're a much bigger company now. There's a lot more people doing it. I think it would be much harder to reproduce what I did at the time. But the joy of them was that they had this sort of royalty-based model where you were compensated primarily based on how much of your content was viewed. Okay. So if you could create a bunch of good content and then there was effectively a combination of how much your stuff's viewed and, and profit share uh, for the organization as a whole. Yep. So if you can create a bunch of really, really good stuff that lots of people want to watch, then you'll do well. And it, it turns out that the InfoSec stuff was in high demand. Uh, so I, I just kept creating more and more content. And, and because it's it's screencast with your voice in your screen and then you edit it all up, you can do it on your own time. So I'd go and I'd do my long days at Pfizer and I'd come home and I'd just record. And it wasn't even the recording. That was the hard work. It was the editing. So for every hour of content I produced, I think I figured out at one time it would take about 10 hours worth of work. Uh, wow. And I would spread those hours across my nights, my weekends. Uh, as I started traveling, particularly later on, I'd do a huge amount of editing on planes. Like I'd just record as much as I could beforehand. Then I'd get on the plane and, hey, planes are boring. So I'd just sit there <laughs> and edit, edit, edit. And I just created more and more content. Some courses were wildly successful. Ironically, the very first course I ever did was way more wildly successful than anything else that came afterwards and, and is wow. still today. Uh, and other things kind of bombed and were a bad ROI, but because I did enough of them, I kind of spread the risk. Okay. So it was one hour of content to 10 hours of editing. I mean, 10 hours how- of effort. So that's, you know, effort, writing scripts, sure. recording, you know, all the rest of it. So then how long did it take to build an entire course? Well, it depends on what it was. So things sure. like that ASP.net for, uh, I was taught to him for ASP.net. I think that was about an eight and a half hour course. Okay. So, you know, that might be, uh, I guess, several work weeks worth of effort, but sure. that's work weeks that had to be nights and weekends and things like that. Right. Uh, look, I might have even, 
I might have even got my numbers way wrong because, of, like, looking back at it, it feels like it took <laughs> a lot more effort. Three that. times that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know, like several times longer. Than that. But the thing is, that, like, you're not sitting there recording a timesheet. You're doing it on your own time. Um, I I probably made a lot of progress in the shower because that's where I, <laughs> I stand and have good ideas. <laughs> so yep. I, I didn't really record that in terms of, like, the 10x effort thing. Okay. And so one of the other pieces that you ended up starting and again, this goes back to just the extensive list of side projects is your blog. We talked about that briefly. You've been posting weekly updates through your blog. Now there's 260. So that's just your five-year anniversary of the weekly updates, I think. Congratulations. It's a podcast. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of those. Now Troy Hunt's weekly update podcast. Has it always been audio? Well, I mean, first of all, the uh, it's actually going to be five years on the 23rd of September, which at the okay. time of recording is nine days away. So for me, in fact, I was just talking to my, my good mate, Scott Helm, uh, just a couple of hours ago going, hey, for like the five year, why don't you, you know, we'll do this together and make it a bit of fun. Um, so I, I started doing this in 2016 because a, a friend of mine, another plural site author, had said, um, you know, look, he's been creating uh, videos you know, of this style. And he's like, hey, they've been really successful. They've just gotten a heap of engagement. You know, you should give it a go. And I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll try it. So I started doing it um, and I just, I found, to, to be honest, the, the greatest benefit was at times that were getting very busy in my life uh, and this was, I got my independence from Pfizer in, when was it, April 2015. So this was like 18 months after that where I was also travelling a lot because I was travelling about 140 days or something a year. Mm. This would give me something each week that appeared on my blog, even if I couldn't write anything. Mm. And I, I found that was important both for, I, I guess, remaining present, but it was also important because I had sponsorship on, on my blog and sponsors although I never really got direct pressure about, you know, you must publish something this week or something. It's like if I don't publish something, then that sponsor gets much less exposure than what they would otherwise. So the, right. the video gave me another avenue to give the sponsor exposure and, and the sponsor is, you know, part of where the money comes from to be able to do what I do. So it was useful for that. And I think the other thing that's with the benefit of hindsight turned out well is the videos give you an opportunity to express sort of personality and candor in a way that written word really doesn't. Huh. And I think that a large part of the, I guess, the identity, for want of a better term, that I've carved out is uh, is my, my nature. Um, and I think video is just a much better construct for that. So I started doing it just as pre-recorded video. And then at one stage, people were like, oh, you should turn this into a podcast. Like, okay, that's not so hard. I'll take the audio and a podcast. And then it must have been, I think, earlier last year during COVID. I did one or two of these just as a live stream. And uh, and I realized that if I do them as a live stream, they're actually much easier because <laughs> I don't need to like take the take the uh, the content afterwards and edit it and upload it. Uh, and and then the the cool upside to it is you get engagement, like real-time engagement. So I sit there and I just watch the YouTube comments and people ask questions and, and they add to the discussion. And I think that that enriches it for everyone. So now I still do that. And then usually within 24 hours, I'll uh, I'll also take the audio and push it out as a podcast and, and put a little, little blog post with everything in there and some references. 
uh, and I've done it every single week, regardless of how messed up my life has been. <laughs> there have been moments for the last five years. Yeah, it's quite the commitment. And it's interesting to hear kind of starting with the video and then going to audio and the podcast format. It feels fairly backwards from kind of what's common today, but certainly it's worked for you. And there's all sorts of research out there about the the benefit of having the the video aspect as well. Obviously, Joe Rogan, fairly well known for that aspect. Uh, so, I mean, we've talked about a lot of your different projects at this point, right? I mean, just to, to recap for a while, you were working the full-time job, you're speaking, your course creation, your blog, the podcast slash video within that. I mean, of all these different pursuits, which did you really enjoy the most? And how has that kind of set the stage for what's ahead for you? Look, to be honest, I've always sort of said that my my life is a bit of an augmentation of many different things that complement each other. So, you know, that the, the blog posts, I I really enjoy I really enjoy writing certain posts. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes they're they're deeply technical things because I'm writing them to learn something. Uh, sometimes they're they're things where someone is wrong on the internet and I just want to fix it. <laughs> this was last <laughs> week. I wrote about uh, biometrics and uh, yep. you know, I, I hate this assertion that people say, oh, don't use biometrics because you can't change your fingerprints. It's like, that's the, no, <laughs> that's not the point. Um, other times that they're more personal. In fact, some of the, the, the blog posts that have been uh, the most, the most warmly received have been ones that are not technical at all. Last year I wrote about dealing with stress uh, and, and particularly stress with divorce. And that was very, very well received. I've read, written another one, which I don't know when I'll publish, but it's it's very, very uh, detailed about uh, that sort of aftermath of, of divorce. It's very, very personal. Right. Uh, and that has helped me a lot just sort of process things and get straight in my own head um, you know, where I stand on, on things. But, you know, that that sort of then complements the, the speaking. So obviously it's a little bit different at the moment where it's not in person, but... You know, going and then standing up on stage, people have read a lot of what I've written before and they've, they sort of then have a bit of a sense of who I am and, and what to expect and they want to come along and see a talk. Uh, and then the talks kind of, yeah, people have seen me in person and then they take photos and they tweet it and that kind of contributes to the, uh, I'm going to say contributes to the overall brand, but I don't want this to make it look like a, a, a branding exercise, but it, sure. it just forms part of the the broader picture of, of who I am and and yeah, the, the person I want to be. Uh, and then, of course, I, I need things like, <laughs> like Pluralsight because I've got to earn money. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I, uh, I do those and, and, and the workshops and, and a, a large part of the reason that they've become successful is because of the other things that I mentioned before that. But I think that the thing that really stands out for me that's, that's worked best of all, whether it be Have I Been Pwned or blogs or any of that other sort of stuff, is that all the stuff I do, I started out, with no expectation whatsoever other than this is fun, let's share it. And then that has somehow become valuable over time and, and given me other opportunities in life. But I, I, to me, that that genesis, and it's the same genesis we have I've been pwned, is, is absolutely core. And I, I think if ever I lost sight of that and somehow the, the poles inverted and it went the other way, I don't think things would be anywhere near as successful. So is there anything for you today that meets that criteria of this is fun, let's share it, any new personal projects that you're working on and ready to unleash to the world shortly here? 
there's a few different things, um, sort of somewhat tangential to Have I Been Pwned. I mean, one of them was uh, last year announcing that I wanted to make parts of Have I Been Pwned open source, which is which has now happened, and in particular the Pwned passwords piece. And the bit I announced a couple of months ago was that the FBI would start feeding passwords into Pwned passwords, yeah. uh, which is just super, super cool to be able to go, the FBI is going to send me <laughs> stolen data. <laughs> Don't say stolen. It's not stolen. There you go. <laughs> I don't even know anymore. I always say, you know, people go, it's stolen data. I go, well, if someone stole your bike, you wouldn't have a bike anymore. If someone steals your data, well, really, you've just got more backups. You know, like it's a kind of different thing. <laughs> sure. So I'm not sure that's the right word. But, you know, that like that's that's super, super cool. And that meets that criteria of of the Pwn Passwords piece in particular, this, this ability to use a, a cool little anonymity API to see if a password's been in a data breach before. There's absolutely zero financial upside anywhere on that. <laughs> it's just cool. And I, I think I mentioned before, I've just uh, just hit the 1 billion requests uh, a month mark as well, which I reckon is awesome. So this FBI oh. stuff is going to be like, there will be 1 billion opportunities every month for each password they pass in to, to hopefully stop someone from using a bad one somewhere else and suffering account takeover. Huh. So there's, there's that. And then there's another tangential piece. I just want to figure out when I want to make my life even busier, <laughs> which is yeah. I really, really want to do more around how do we as an industry do better with reporting data breaches to the impacted organisation uh, yeah. and then communicating them with, with impacted individuals within there. And the thing that keeps striking me here is that there are so many breaches. Every day I get sent multiple breaches and I can only process a very small portion of them. And part of the reason for that is that I only put stuff up on Have I Been Pwned if the organisation has been advised, which is a big, big overhead on my part, or Mm. if it's been in the press somewhere or if there's been sufficient effort, reasonable effort made to disclose and I just can't get anywhere. So I sort of try and do everything I can, but... Yeah, it's just crazy that I'm sitting here as an individual trying to do the right thing, and then you've got a whole bunch of professional organisations just yoloing all the data into their online indexes, and they're they're not as well known as have I been pwned. But yeah, I get cases like the other day where someone reaches out to me and they said, "Hey, you know, such and such a company has just reported that uh, some of my members were in a data breach of my service." Is the first I've heard. I'm like, well, that's not cool, you know. I've, yeah. I should let you know, but. Part of the reason they probably don't let you know is because disclosure is a pain in the backside. It's it, it's often a, a very thankless task that's high overhead and very often low um, low return. And, and for organisations that are financially motivated, I, I can see why they just go, well, I'll just load the data and you know, feed them to the lawyers. <laughs> Sounds like superlative enterprises could maybe use its second employee for uh, some validation. <laughs> Taking some uh, of your workload there. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've got some ideas. But it's, uh, <laughs> it, it'd be it'd be something I think separate and tangential. Uh, yeah. I, I think that there is a, a case to be made for a, a much more industry wide approach that is not driven by money. Yep. Well, it's a valiant effort along with many of your other projects here, Troy. Thank you again for your time and just sharing everything you've been up to and and how you've become what you are today in terms of just a, a landmark figure in the security space. Oh, cheers, mate. I appreciate the the chance to share some stories. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.